Hi, this is Aaron. We'll get to today's Free Thoughts episode in just a second. But first, I wanted to let you all know that we've just launched a brand new, redesigned libertarianism.org. We've made it a lot easier to find whatever you're looking for, whether it's introductory materials or deep dives into particular topics within the libertarian tradition. I think you'll really like it, so if you haven't already, head on over to libertarianism.org and check it out. And with that, back to Free Thoughts. Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Nicholas Johnson, professor of law at Fordham University School of Law. He is the co-author of the leading casebook on the Second Amendment, Firearms Law and the Second Amendment, and author of Negroes and the Gun. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Nick. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Given the charged times that we live in, which are even more charged than when this book came out six years ago, I'd like to first ask, why use the word Negroes in the title? Sure. So uh, at the time I was doing the book, um, one of the most significant uh, works that existed at the time uh, was the uh, the book by Robert Williams, uh, Negroes with Guns. And uh, people who know that book and who know this story um, will appreciate the significance of um, Williams and uh, Williams' uh, writing uh, in the context of, of my broader project. So um, the the title, um, obviously, you know, something I consulted with the publisher about, and uh, the yeah, I guess uh, authors have uh, veto power over the the title, but don't entirely control uh, the title. But in conversations with the publisher um, at the time, uh, Prometheus, and uh, with sort of uh, due consideration for the significance of the work that uh, Robert Williams uh, put in, um, in in this area uh, decades before uh, I tried to sort of chronicle uh, something a little broader. Um, uh, it seemed to me uh, appropriate to have um, this title as a kind of tribute, uh, or at least an acknowledgement of uh, the, the prior work of Robert Williams. And, and when uh, people look for um, this book now uh, online, uh, one of the things that you'll see uh, typically on Amazon or one of the other sources is uh, that when my book comes up, William's book comes up. So I think it's it's really good company. Yeah, and I think it's it, it definitely I, I'm not sure if it's offensive today because I'm not sure what is offensive anymore, but uh, it definitely conveys the fact that your book is about a period of time. The majority of the book is about a period of time where that word was the normal word used uh, to describe my people. It was a tough call, but, you know, I start uh, during the period of slavery and uh, uh, basically the, the book moves through uh, essentially the um, middle of the 20th century and, and sort of cuts off at around the, uh, the end of, of the 1960s. So uh, the other thing that obviously was going on was I was trying to suggest that there was a long timeline uh, in which uh, this, this issue was, was relevant and developing. Yes. Now, given that African-Americans politically often vote for Democrats, uh, it's not all, but politically it's, it's often true. Um, is it safe to say that, that often blacks have a different view on gun control, like even today than the Democrats that, that are often that they vote for, or maybe at least that they should have a different view on gun control? 
So this is a complicated piece, and I, I try to get uh, at it a little bit, and I've done some some other work on on this point. So the the, the first response is that that politics makes uh, strange bedfellows, and that that people um, end up um, voting in ways that uh, compromise maybe uh, a variety of the issues that they uh, care about, but they vote for um, um, a, a party or follow a party for um, reasons that um, make sense to them. So uh, s- several things. Um, you know, over the long term, uh, we see blacks shifting back and forth between Republicans and Democrats. Obviously, the Republican Party is you know, the party of Lincoln. Um, we move through uh, the early part of uh, the 20th century, and I c- chronicle this in the book, um, uh, blacks in and the NAACP um, uh, sort of took this position publicly. Uh, blacks had complaints about Republicans in the early part of the 20th century, but still uh, following, uh, for example, Woodrow Wilson's uh, praise of the, the film uh, um, um, Birth of a Nation, uh, we saw James Weldon Johnson uh, basically declaring war against uh, the Democrats and aligning with uh, the Republicans. Uh, you see blacks moving uh, more closely to the policies of uh, Democrats during uh, the peri- during F- the uh, period of, of FDR and the New Deal, um, and finally, depending on who you talk to, uh, you see uh, the the uh, people who voted for or blacks who voted for Republicans uh, moving away uh, more more earnestly from uh, Republicans after. Um, or, Barry Goldwater during the period yeah. where there was controversy about the Civil Rights Act of 64. Now, back back to your, the, the um, thing that I think uh, prompted your question, and that is, uh, why is it that um, black folk would align so aggressively with Democrats if they also were gun owners? And, and we see this tension uh, all over. So um, I, I think my book shows and, and uh, lots of the polling shows uh, that black people own guns, have uh, owned guns for uh, quite a long time um, and uh, still uh, continue to, to vote for uh, overwhelmingly for Democrats, even though Democrats are the party of gun control. And uh, I mean, you see similar tensions, though, uh, between uh, sort of the Democratic Party platform and the black church, for example. So you'll, you'll find point, lots of, of socially conservative views coming out of, of lots of, of black churches. Uh, but that doesn't stop uh, black folk, I think, generally for uh, from uh, deciding that they're, they're going to vote overwhelmingly for Democrats on the view that that I think that Democrats are, uh, um, at least in the, the near term, uh, better on uh, broader um, civil rights questions and maybe some social and economic issues that, uh, uh, that, that people have, have uh, concerns about. And the other, I guess the last piece of this is that um, as, as you started to get um, the development of a more robust black political class, um, that um, group aligned with Democrats and found a sort of comfortable home, I think, with Democrats. And and that generated, I believe, other sorts of, of alliances that continue to endure. So I think it's it's a complicated question, but uh, it's distilled in the idea that, that politics makes uh, um, odd alliances sometimes. Well, I definitely have some some black friends who 
have guns in the, in that are heirlooms that there are deeply prized possessions to them and and they've take different views even though they're on the left uh, they take different views on gun control because of what African Americans have experienced in this country and in many ways are still experiencing so let's get a little bit into that um i find one of the more striking parts of your book is all the the research into the antebellum resistance, which would seem to be a difficult area to research, uh, probably a lot of reading newspapers and court cases. But but slavery was, of course, an institution of violence. Um, you describe it at one point as something like a state of war. And there were slaves who did resist. And sometimes they did resist with guns, which kind of surprised me. Uh, indeed. Uh, so this like the reality of most of uh, you know what we care about, uh, things are way more complicated than our sort of headline depictions. And um, I did, in fact, at one point uh, in the book, uh, talk about the idea of slavery as a state of war. And I was trying to distinguish between uh, that and what we saw later in this broad tradition, which was um, the people in the leadership and the grassroots trying to make a distinction between political violence, which they uh, were committed to avoiding, versus, uh, on the other hand, uh, private self-defense, including armed self-defense, which uh, was uh, just a, a crucial resource and uh, was uh, continuously endorsed as as legitimate. But in the period now that that occurs um, and be begins to develop um, after the Civil War. But prior to the Civil War, activists like Frederick Douglass and many others uh, who uh, are, are more obscure names um, uh, basically considered uh, slavery to be um, a, a state of war. And they were talking about this in a variety of contexts. So um, one of the most obvious places where you begin thinking about it is in the scenario where slaves are uh, escaping. And we've got lots of cryptic reports of uh, slaves basically uh, either uh, stealing guns, and I mean, that was the, the sort of main source, or also acquiring guns through um, more uh, remarkable and obscure networks that sometimes included uh, free blacks who were living among them. So uh, you mentioned court records and things like that. Uh, and it just reminds me of, of one of these uh, really sort of interesting, uh, more detailed uh, scenarios. Um, it's a court case involving a merchant whose last name was Flexstein. Um, and Flexstein was charged uh, with the crime of trading with slaves. And uh, he actually sold a gun to a uh, black undercover. Or, so so the, the complaint was actually lodged by a, a um, another uh, white merchant uh, who was complaining about Flexstein selling to slaves. And, and this fellow sent uh, his black slave into uh, Flexstein's store. Flexstein sells the, the slave a gun. Um, and uh, you know, that... It spins out into uh, more detail that uh, survives in the form of court records. So uh, I mentioned that example just as an indication of the fact that our instinct that this was um, a scenario where slaves were always getting guns by theft, uh, that instinct doesn't account for uh, the sort of richness of uh, the, the scenarios that were, were unfolding. Now, the Flexstein case, I think, is, is unusual, but we've got lots of other scenarios where we see slave escapes involving uh, slaves who, one way or another, managed to get access uh, to firearms. The other aspect of the um, 
the the sort of gun culture during the same uh, period um, really unfolds uh, in more detail in the in the border states where you had uh, then escaped slaves, but also slave catchers. So this dynamic, this back and forth between uh, slave catchers and and fugitive slaves generates another scenario where there is a, a clear need for uh, self defense, where there is a kind of uh, continuing uh, contest, low-level battles going on between uh, slave catchers and uh, escaped fugitive slaves. And uh, oftentimes the fugitive slaves were aided by uh, uh, white uh, abolitionists or, or helpers uh, who in many instances, uh, were the sources of uh, the firearms that uh, the fugitive slaves were deploying. Uh, And the book chronicles a variety of these scenarios where uh, essentially slaves were being armed uh, by uh, white allies, abolitionists. uh, We've got uh, scenarios in Washington, D.C., where uh, two uh, fugitives were aided by a white congressman, end up in a shootout with, with local authorities. Lots of examples in the border states, um, and um, in in one of the the you know the big volumes from uh, the period uh, that chronicles the uh, Underground Railroad, we see a variety of these uh, scenarios unfolding where uh, slave catchers are coming. As you know, this is the middle of the you know from 1840 basically to uh, the beginning or 1830 uh, through the beginning of the Civil War, uh, lots of, of good documentation uh, suggesting that that slaves on the run were coming sometimes with arms, um, and certainly by the time they got to uh, free territory, were managing to get them get their hands on firearms with the recognition that uh, they might have to fight off uh, uh, slave catchers who were in pursuit. Now, one of the uh, characters, one of the figures in your book, and of course, one of the important figures in American history uh, was Frederick Douglass, who began as a slave named Bailey. And of course, he writes about in his autobiography, his experience, physically altercation with a with a slave driver. Well, after he got out of slavery, what was his position on guns and what black folks should do regarding guns and resistance to slavery? Sure. So um, Douglas evolves and you know, he, he starts under the um, influence and tutelage of um, uh, pacifist abolitionists. Um, but as he develops, uh, becomes a, a sort of more uh, independent thinker, um, he, to, to the chagrin of, of, I think, some of, of those who were his early sponsors, uh, he becomes uh, much more, uh, I guess we would say, militant on uh, uh, this point. And so, so there are a variety of, uh, you know, one of the most famous quotes from uh, Douglas is something like, uh, a good revolver is the best response to the slave catcher. And here he's talking about, um, or, you know, laying criticism on the, um, the, the, the second uh, fugitive slave law, which, which allow, you know, there, there's lots of detail about this um, in, in, the, um, in the book. Um, but uh, Douglas is, is advocating um, that escaped slaves and free people 
both north and south, uh, should defend themselves against the sort of inherent violence of, of, uh, of the era. And uh, by referencing the revolver, you know, significant to appreciate both the time and the way that the technology was, was evolving, uh, uh, the revolver was the, the state-of-the-art repeating technology at the time that uh, Douglas made this comment. So uh, what he was, was suggesting was uh, not just that uh, um, free people and, and fugitives and, and I suppose slaves themselves uh, arm themselves where they could against the surrounding threats, but that they um, get access to uh, the best available repeating technology given uh, the, the source of the types of threats that they were likely to face. So these were often going to be scenarios where um, the issue was not just um, self-defense in the context of some little uh, one-on-one dispute. Uh, He was recognizing that uh, the people who he to whom he was giving advice, uh, were likely to be facing uh, or could be facing multiple assailants, potentially mobbers, and um, the um, utility of the repeating technology was was something that was, was evident in uh, that most famous quote from Douglas. Yeah, that, that strikes me, this, the parts, all the instances you talk about in the book where the single shot pistol ended up not being useful um, or counterproductive or in, in front of a mob where you could only shoot it once. And then that, that struck me as sort of interesting commentary on magazine restriction debates that we currently have. Yeah, it's, you know, this, this is, I, I'm, I try to be careful about uh, suggesting any sort of hard and fast uh, lessons uh, you know, moving across uh, centuries, and um, especially in the context of uh, our, our modern conversation, I'm, I'm also trying to be, uh, as I talk with people, uh, careful and to use as as sort of moderate a tone uh, as as I can. Uh, now, have, with with that preface, uh, I, th- I think it is it is clear um, that the concerns that Douglas uh, was talking about uh, went beyond just the the worry about the the single assailant. And uh, the book is filled with um, uh, scenarios where um, you've got. Um, outnumbered individuals. You've got a scenario where people are, are facing mobs and you see this, this story. I mean, you, your observation rings true, not just in the context of uh, the sort of problems and, and, and issues and violence that uh, Frederick Douglass was talking about, but we see the same theme running through the, the commentary and observations of Ida B. Wells, who, who urged uh, famously that the uh, uh, Winchester rifle deserves a place of honor in every black home. And we see similar sorts of concerns uh, moving forward into the... Um, uh, my screen just went off, and I'm uh, sorry. So, so, uh, so moving forward into the 20th century, and uh, we've got a similar set of, of concerns that appear in the Ocean Suite case, and uh, moving into the modern civil rights era, where you see stalwarts of the black community um, deploying multi-shot technology again uh, against mobbers and night riders and um, other sorts of 
of, of uh, terrorist uh, activity. Well, you you point out uh, in a footnote um, uh, someone who influenced both of us, Don Cates, who is sort of one of the doings of Second Amendment scholarship, lifelong, very died-in-the-wool civil rights activist, and that's where he learned about the well, the way he told it to me, and I think to you too, that's where he learned about the value of a gun. And he traveled when he was in the South in the 60s with three guns uh, because of those kind of concerns. So I'm glad that you mentioned Don Cates. I was talking with someone about him recently. Um, he what died. Wonderful man. Wonderful man. He died recently. Uh, he was, was one of the, the first people who um, sort of embraced my scholarship as I was sort of um, moving around in, in the, the early stages, um, trying to gain my uh, footing in this work. And um, Don Cates, he, he's it's, it's too bad that one doesn't have a, a photograph of him. He, he's about, he was about five foot three. Uh, we, we affectionately, uh, over time, started calling him Papa Smurf because he was, was bearded and, and uh, had a, a kind of uh, gruff disposition, but ultimately <laughs> was an uh, incredibly kind, uh, incredibly intelligent man um, whose work on the Second Amendment began, uh, as, as you said, um, with work that he was doing as a law student, um, he was, I think, still at Yale Law School, spent the summer working for William Kunstler um, in North Carolina, representing uh, a series of black plaintiffs who were pushing for the um, sort of fulfillment of a variety of the statutory initiatives that were supposedly um, ushering in civil rights. Uh, the words uh, were not actually enforced as vigorously as one would hope, and some of the work that Cates and others did was, was instrumental in impressing uh, forward on the implementation of um, of those those federal statutes, and um, Don tells uh, or would tell in lots of detail how uh, he was agnostic on the question of firearms until he got into a community representing uh, mainly black plaintiffs, where it was quite clear that uh, reliance on the state for uh, private or for personal security was just uh, an absurdity. And the idea that he uh, carried not one but three guns um, was, in, in his telling, and, and yeah, I've, I've heard uh, from, from, I've spent or did spend, uh, had the, the pleasure of spending uh, good amounts of time with, with Don over the years, and, and he commented on papers. And when I was uh, working on, uh, on this book, uh, I, I talked with him uh, again in detail. And his, his comment about uh, multiple firearms was uh, just a reflection that sometimes he would get to the a client's location, uh, there would be surrounding threats or the hint of some uh, terrorist activity or uh, some worry by people that if they were to travel to a deposition and uh, got delayed, that coming back late, they wouldn't feel safe. So he uh, was, was not just worried about protecting himself, uh, but he was also thinking about being in scenarios where he would have to lend uh, a firearm to someone who uh, was was either uh, a client or someone who was, was assisting him. And um, all of that, th th those lessons, I think, 
uh, were uh, a source for him of uh, knowledge and experience that allowed him to appreciate um, the significance of having a tool that allowed one to deal with uh, imminent deadly threats. And and this is something that uh, I just want to emphasize about the, the book and about the distinction between political violence and self-defense that runs throughout the book and runs throughout the tradition of arms. So uh, what one finds, uh, certainly after the Civil War developing and, and uh, appearing in a, a very robust fashion uh, during the, the 20th century, is a commitment by Black folk to the idea of self-defense. But when, when people say that sometimes, or when one says self-defense, uh, sometimes I hear people immediately start criticizing um, and utilizing terms like vigilantism. And there's a, there's a very important distinction here. Vigilantism is punishment, where people take the law into their own hands. Self-defense, on the other hand, is the law's recognition that in certain scenarios, uh, individuals will face threats that are so imminent that the government cannot intervene. So uh, this is a, a window within which private violence is authorized, and it's a very limited window. It doesn't allow people to act to behave like uh, police, um, and and it's one of the, the things that I think is incredibly important uh, as a distinction for people to appreciate uh, that was uh, emphasized by the, the leadership at the time. And I think it's an important uh, distinction in uh, the context of the conversations we're having today. So so Don's, you know, back to uh, the, the original question, uh, Don's commitment in, in, in this area uh, was born out of a recognition that there were uh, lots of scenarios that he faced where where relying on the state not only was uh, impractical because you were in a rural area where police could not uh, arrive, uh, police couldn't even be called, you're dealing with people out in the country who didn't have telephones, um, and, uh, and beyond that, there were scenarios where uh, the, the state itself was, was a threat, was a menace. And those two uh, situations generate for us a recognition of the, the need for individuals to have a tool to deal with those scenarios where they're facing that kind of threat that uh, the government is not prepared uh, to, to deal with on their behalf. Yes. In, in my conversations with Don, it, it also got me thinking about what Thurgood Marshall would maybe have decided if he would have decided Heller because Thurgood Marshall experienced something very similar when he was going around the South defending black men accused of rape and other spurious charges that he, he had to be armed and he had to have armed people around him to even do that. Well, so Thurgood Marshall is – it's almost a, a – Name any one of significance during that period, and um, they there's some reference to this this issue. So um, the, the stories about Thurgood Marshall there there are probably four or five instances in in the book. Um, one of the the best most indicative ones I think is uh, actually uh, it's about Marshall, but the quote comes from uh, Judge Constance uh, Baker Motley uh, who. Um, eventually rose to uh, be a judge on the Second uh, Circuit Court of Appeals. And um, uh, Motley t 
talks about how when she and Thurgood were uh, litigating one of the desegregation cases, uh, they stayed at the home of, of a fellow uh, local NAACP um, um, official named Arthur Shores, and that the uh, that surrounding Shores' home and in his garage were uh, scores of men armed with rifles and pistols, and that uh, Motley and Thurgood Marshall received an, an armed escort to and from the courthouse on a, basically a daily basis um, because they had been obviously threatened. They were staying at Shore's house because there were no hotels that they were allowed to stay in. And the, the significance of uh, that story is that it's repeated in a variety of scenarios. Uh, during the Emmett Till trial, we see a uh, similar story surrounding the um, um, Mississippi Delta activist uh, TRM Howard and lots of, of references to the fact that um, the investigations that went forward uh, during that period uh, could not have occurred had it not been for Howard. And Howard was prodigiously armed, as were most of the, uh, the men, his uh, neighbors uh, in the surrounding community. Yeah, it's fascinating that I bring this up a lot in uh, going from, say, let's just say after the Civil War. So slavery is, of course, an institution of violence, but from Reconstruction up through the 60s into the 70s in the South, in many instances, there was great fear, especially if you're working in the causes that you're, we're talking about. Uh, and that's the kind of fear of tyranny that's interesting because people often make fun of Second Amendment advocates who say, the Second Amendment is partially about resisting the government. They say, oh, well, you could never resist the United States military, like some one person is going to stand off against the military. But that's not the point. Uh, it's it's what the experience, especially of African-Americans, for 100 years of living in a, in a situation where they, they had a reason to fear the government. Well, I, I recently have still got it in draft, but one, I've got a piece that I've been working on. And one of the things that I try to do, uh, again, with using as, as uh, it's hard to use calm language and to be reserved talking about violence, obviously. Uh, but one of the things that I say is that in, in the search for um, uh, tyranny that some people sort of scoff at, um, what we find in the experience of, uh, of Black folk over the period from Reconstruction through certainly the 1960s, and we could uh, move forward in terms of that timeline, uh, I think, uh, yeah, as, as well. To date, to some um, extent, yeah. But what, yeah, so this, this is, this is small scale tyranny. Uh, this is um, people who have a, um, a reason to worry about how the power of government is being utilized against them at either the state or the local level. And the period following Reconstruction, after the end of Reconstruction, I've got a chapter that's called the Nader, uh, which is the low point, uh, many would say, of uh, the, the black experience, moving into the, the sort of aggressive lynch era of the early 20th century, where you find uh, countless episodes of uh, people who are endangered, who are terrorized, and one of the sources of that terror is 
um, government officials operating uh, sometimes in their official capacity, sometimes in sort of an ambiguous way. But at the, the state and local level, this um, continuous enterprise where the power of government is uh, utilized, the violence that government is authorized to engage in is deployed in uh, pernicious ways against um, individuals. And that is, it seems to me, a uh, better example of the sort of tyranny that any civil libertarian would worry about than mo- anything that occurred in the, the, the 1780s. Or, um, so, mm-hmm. so I know we have this conversation um, at, the, at the root of the Second Amendment debate, and, and people conjure up images of uh, red coats and, and tea party or Tea Party vandalism, um, but the, the the sort of low grade continuous abuse of uh, government power that um, has been deployed um, against blacks over the, a good part of our uh, of our history uh, strikes me as um, a set of of indicators and and suggestion of tyranny that people should, if they're thinking about this question, uh, give more consideration. Um, It is a different image of uh, the sort of tyranny story. And the the next part of it is um, often when people have this conversation about the lack of utility of of firearms against the government, there there was some politician recently who said, well, the government's got nukes and and all you have is your rifle. And and that trivializes uh, what I think is a much more uh, important aspect to the debate. And that is that in lots of the stories that we see, uh, certainly as you move through the latter part of the 19th century, through the or middle of of the 20th century, Um, it is not as if armed blacks are uh, engaged in some kind of uh, pseudo red coat activity and achieving political goals using violence. The importance of the guns that uh, are deployed by people in many of these stories um, to deal with the scenarios of tyranny is that they simply allow people to survive the next day, the next week, um, and hopefully get themselves to a point where they can deploy the uh, tools of, of uh, politics and democracy to try and, and protect themselves and, and move on to a better spot. And that, that's the ideal. That is, uh, so if you're, if you're facing, uh, again, this kind of imminent abuse of uh, government power, you need to get out of that situation. And sometimes... And many times uh, we see in, in the stories that I try to chronicle, um, black um, um, plaintiffs in in in, in litigation um, have this prior story where they ended up fighting off some abusive government uh, actor, and uh, they finally, at long last, get vindication. But to get that vindication, you got to survive through the immediate mm-hmm. attack. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the interesting thing too about. The current crisis of which there's at least two we're experiencing, uh, protests against police violence, which uh, is a longstanding thing against African-Americans in particular, and of course the pandemic. And I had many friends contact me, at least three who are generally anti-gun, to ask me about 
what gun they should purchase uh, in a time of uncertainty about what the government can do, will do to you, and whether or not you can protect yourself from possibly other citizens. Uh, and that's – again, I, I said to them many times, this is how especially African-Americans felt for a long, long time, especially in the South. Um, and you know, it's not – it's not the same thing being in a pandemic and in this unrest, but that moment that you feel that maybe the cops won't protect you or maybe something may be worth protecting is the moment where you say a gun isn't so bad anymore. Um, and I want to go back again to Reconstruction because you mentioned this, uh, so it was the nadir, and it absolutely was. Um, how does the 14th Amendment and what we learned about the sort of debates over the 14th Amendment, how does that sort of reconceptualize or, or inform our view of the Second Amendment and, and what it means? So the, there's a rich scholarship about the 14th Amendment. There's a rich scholarship about uh, covering the the, er, the original intent of uh, the Second Amendment. And just to just in terms of, of the timeline. So the Second Amendment is, is a creation of uh, the, the 18th century. So when you know, we get a, a constitution in 1787, we get a Bill of Rights in 1789, um, and then we move uh, basically a, almost another century before we uh, encounter the 14th Amendment. And uh, just to, to summarize what I, I think is the general view, I'll try to be objective about this. I've been involved and done some of the scholarships, so uh, I, I want to try not to give short shrift to uh, uh, people who in the details will disagree with me. Um, but in so in the Heller case, we saw uh, the court coming to the conclusion that the aim of uh, the Second Amendment was to uh, protect an, an individual right. But we, you know, we got this this language that some will say is a sort of riddle, um, and the language talks a lot of you know has this militia. Um, um, Prefatory clause, and the uh, so so there's there's no doubt that conversations about uh, the federal power over the militia, uh, you know, appear in the debates about the Constitution and that whole tw that whole seventeenth uh, century conversation um, has more of a uh, militia cast to it. Um, <clears throat> When you, by the time you get to the 14th Amendment, um, what we find there is some of the strongest historical evidence of the intention or the aim of, of the framers and the, the ratifiers. And when I say ratifiers, I should use an asterisk because uh, some will, many will argue that uh, the Southern states were coerced into uh, ratifying the Fourteenth Amendment. And that's a, a separate story. Uh, but as as one looks at the evolution of the Fourteenth Amendment, it comes out of uh, the, a set of, of concerns uh, that the freedmen. Once the war was over, were being essentially abused, and uh, through the mechanisms of the Black Codes and uh, administration of the law by the former Confederate states, and that the, resp the, the responses to that abuse were at least threefold. So one is the development of the Freedmen's Bureau through the, the Freedmen's Bureau Act. Um, the, the other is Civil Rights Act of, of uh, 1866, and then finally the uh, 14th Amendment. So as you look at the details of the Freedmen's Bureau Act, um, it explicitly talks about 
one of the aims being uh, to protect the freedmen um, in the exercise of their constitutional rights, including, and I talk about this explicitly in the book, the right to keep and bear arms. This was not talking about militias. This was a recognition that the freedmen needed firearms to defend themselves against uh, racist terrorism and against the um, uh, sort of um, racist administration of, of the law by the, the uh, through the black coats. We see similar language um, appearing in the Civil Rights Act of, of 1866 and in the um, um, precursor to or the selling of the 14th Amendment, we see the sponsors, for example, of uh, the 14th Amendment talking about, there's this famous quote, uh, the great aim of the 14th Amendment is to guarantee uh, to the freedmen the benefits of the individual rights guarantees in the Bill of Rights. Uh, and then uh, one of the most famous quotes ticks them off and includes explicitly the right to keep and bear arms. And all of the surrounding commentary there uh, appreciated that we were talking not about blacks or anybody else participating in a militia. This was a very individual rights focused uh, conversation and uh, the historical context makes it quite clear why um, the right to arms was uh, essential to be protected um, because we had people who previously were slaves now in the same environment dealing with uh, individuals who were chafing under a result uh, that transformed the status of, of, of these now uh, free people. And violence was imminent violence uh, that the state either uh, could not or would not deal with uh, was a daily sort of concern uh, for, for that group. Well, in some sense, you could actually argue that the, I mean, the first KKK was partially a gun control organization, correct? Oh, absolutely. The 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 black codes were um, so these were explicit over or, or um, these were laws passed in in a quasi legitimate way that were explicitly racist. So the idea was that if you're going to dominate uh, a a people, um, if you're going to re-enslave them in another form, uh, you have to disarm them in order to ensure that they can't fight back. And this was obviously a greater concern after the uh, Civil War because you had uh, black men uh, who had served as soldiers, who brought back many of them the uh, got their service weapons. Um, the you know, blacks in the general population had now uh, greater access to firearms. So they were less easily intimidated. And uh, one of the aims of uh, the renewed attempt at subjugation was to disarm this group. So uh, when people talk about, um, you know, there, there, there are several uh, articles, scholarly articles out there that, that track what some of the authors call the racist roots of gun control. But what, what they're talking about is uh, this era where um, one finds in the, um, the, the, the post-war South um, a variety of um, state laws that had the aim, basically, of disarming, um, the, disarming black people. And as, one, as we move forward uh, from that period into the early 20th century, all the way up through uh, the 1960s, uh, we see other more subtle renditions of uh, a similar kind of thing. So what we're talking about after the Civil War, prior to the, the 14th Amendment, were these um, de jure, these formal formally racist 
um, statutes. What happens as time goes on is that we see um, racially neutral laws being implemented or um, that supposedly that nominally apply to uh, everyone, um, you know, gun control standards that uh, supposedly mm-hmm. apply to the entire population. But as a matter of practice, um, many of those in the South were administered against blacks in an overtly racist way. And that's sort of, uh, we see that to, some of those are left around today in the form of what are called May issue laws, laws that determine whether or not you can carry a gun based on the subjective determination of a sheriff, for example. Those were used widely to disarm African-Americans, correct? And Yes. And so we've got good evidence of that in the, I talk about some of this, good evidence of that in the 1950s, 1960s. As you move into the 1970s, and the research here uh, gets slipperier. As you move into the 1970s, 1980s, you see similar sorts of criticisms. Um, and one source of, of that criticism is um, the impulse for the scenario that we find ourselves in today, that is where most states have adopted shall-issue concealed carry. But the shall-issue concealed carry movement, uh, according to um, scholarship that I, I think is sound was prompted yeah was was prompted in part by um complaints that the shall issue sorry the complaints that the discretionary issue process was dominated by what i'll call cronyism and uh so when i said that the research gets slipperier um if one looked at the results of the discretionary carry um, regimes, uh, what one found was that the population of people who uh, had been granted permits to carry firearms was a population that looked like the the sheriff's office. That is, it was yeah. mainly white males. It was privileged white males. Uh, it seemed as if the denials were concentrated among um, women and outsiders. So, so it was another um, situation where the results looked discriminatory. It's harder to find the smoking gun, harder to say that there was an overtly uh, racist kind of agenda. So the researchers who have, have looked at, at this piece have talked about uh, this as, uh, or talked about the discretionary permitting system as a kind of male-dominated, crony-favoring uh, uh, scenario. And one, that was a kind of criticism that gave fuel to the development of the shall issue movement, which has resulted in what we find today, where in uh, the overwhelming majority of uh, U.S. states, uh, if one is can lawfully own a firearm, one also uh, can get a permit to to carry. And in the few places where the discretionary system uh, still applies, there there was certainly a period, for example, um, in in New York City, where the list of uh, people who were granted permits to carry was was notoriously filled with uh, privileged folks. So if, mm-hmm. basically, if you were rich or if you were an insider, um, that is people who could already afford uh, private security. But if you were an ordinary person 
whose um, life was 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 made dangerous by um, any number of, of circumstances, you were deemed to to be outside the the realm of someone who uh, could be granted a uh, a carry license. So so there's there's the rich, interesting literature with regard to those those two regimes of uh, licensing uh, or permitting uh, concealed carry. Um, and I think it traces back to the uh, world where we saw favoritism and, and uh, ultimately uh, overt racism. Yeah, rereading your book, because I, I did read it uh, six years ago, but rereading it in light of the current situation I've already mentioned, unrest, protests about police violence and a pandemic, uh, it struck me that in some sense, there is, a, there is a sense that to use the parlance of our times, gun control is white privilege, or at least it's a it's the privilege to believe that you're protected by other forces to the point that you don't have to protect yourself is something that white people take for granted. Uh, and maybe that's that's sort of ultimately the point that 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 African Americans should look, or should we should understand that situation that African Americans have generally been in. Yeah. So th this is a place where I, I'll, I'll try to be careful and uh, think through what I want to say before I uh, put it out there into the um, internet world. Uh, but I, 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 I have. Um, on on a couple of occasions, so so I, I did a couple of NPR um, interviews years ago, where the result of our conversation was one of the interviewers saying basically what you have said. Uh, I did not use the the term uh, white privilege, uh, but the interviewer used something like it at the end of a conversation where I described the following. So the as one traces the origin of the modern gun control movement, uh, one of the early players in uh, who, who was significant in the development of what was then called um, the Handgun Control Inc. was was a, a man named Pete Shields, and Pete Shields had endured the tragedy of his son being killed uh, by a criminal who was wielding uh, a gun. And he, um, along with others, um, coalition that, that I think initially started as the coalition to ban handguns, um, they they developed the. They were the impulse for the sort of uh, powerful development of uh, the, the modern uh, gun control movement. Uh, and this is 1972 or so. And um, Pete Shields' advice at the time um, was, you don't need a gun. Um, if you have an altercation, just give them what they want or run. And in 1994, or so, I was writing one of my first uh, pieces of, of work in this area. One of the things that, that I said, and nobody was using the term white privilege at the time, one of the things that I said was, well, what if they want you dead or maimed? And what I was trying to uh, conjure up was a kind of spectrum of threats. And what I was suggesting and what I suggested to the NPR um, uh, reporter was that 
some of it seemed to me at the time, and I guess still does, that some of the thinking that drives the gun control movement um, is from the perspective of a kind of affluent suburbanite who anticipates that the threats he or she is likely to encounter are going to be threats from some um, deprived person who basically wants your wallet. And I guess if that were, were my situation and my experience, I would agree. If, I, if my choice were to carry a gun in defense of my wallet or just hand over my wallet to some person who uh, is desperate enough to use violence, I, I can see, I guess, that, that approach. But as, as I talked later with, you know, with women who were saying, well, what if they want me dead? Or, so you think about the other kinds of threats that people face. Um, women worried about sexual assault or blacks. Yeah who are in, uh, who've got this history that we've been talking about. What if someone wants me dead or maimed or injured? And it's back, it's not just uh, obviously a, a race issue because Don Cates uh, and I had this conversation and, and uh, I think he uh, would say sort of the same thing. But there is, it seems to me, at the um, root of some policies that are uh, aimed at, control at some gun control policies, there is a kind of, of threat narrative that reflects a very limited kind of experience. And um, I suppose that I will say that, that, that I, I agree with the, the notion that people whose threat narrative is pretty narrow and who have um, high confidence that when they call 911, that police will arrive quickly and will not perceive them to be the threat when they arrive and all the other things that uh, I think black people have historically uh, worried about um, when they, they call the authorities. For someone who doesn't have that set of worries, uh, it seems to me that it is, it is easier to embrace the, um, the idea that one should rely on the government. But if your worry is, well, I'm not sure I can trust the government. I'm not sure that they will show up on time, even if they could show up within, you know, the few seconds after which the, uh, the threat um, sparks. Um, you, you naturally are going to have, I think, different views about uh, firearms policy and policing, uh, depending on first your experience. But moreover, uh, it's not just experience that we're talking about here. Everybody is making projections about the future. And you make those projections based partly on your experience, partly on your history, partly on what people in your subculture are, are experiencing. And uh, we all have, have very different uh, uh, stories that are fueling our uh, perceptions about the future and our sense about the risks that uh, may or may not justify uh, our decision to own a firearm or want to carry a firearm. Yes, I, I didn't mean to imply that gun control, the only argument for gun control would be based in that type of privilege, but, but I agree with you that it's too often ignored, which is one reason why your book is so valuable to resurrect that history if people hadn't thought about uh, that relationship. Now, of course, today, 
we're seeing some of the same issues come up, uh, what you describe as the sort of the debate over political violence and the self-defeating political violence uh, that is perceived to sort of set the cause back. Um, given that and also what's going on with the police, and I have seen some articles and some upticks about uh, black ownership of guns becoming relevant again. Do you think that the gun control debate has sort of changed today and, and, and maybe gone back to the kind of debates that we had over the time period of your book? So the, the honest answer is that we're in the middle of it. And I, I have things that I'm observing that I think are happening Um Proving it um, in the in the way that you would hope to do as a scholar, uh, I think, takes more time and more data. And uh, I think we've got to come out the other end of uh, sort of this period of turmoil that we we're in uh, before one can can draw really um, plausible conclusions about what's happening. But I will say that I've observed uh, certain things. Uh, one is that. In the sort of mainstream media reporting, um, there is a greater recognition of the possibility that you described. That is, that um, there's a, a greater recognition of the uh, reasons why um, black people might more um, often today choose to own firearms. But having said that, uh, when my book came out, um, Probably so, so I did I did lots of interviews with the New York Times around 2015, 2016. Uh, the Times ran a front page above the fold story on um, on black gun ownership. Uh, and the narrative then was um, something about Trumpism, I guess. Um, the 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 other thing that I will will say is, is that over the last um several months, I've, I've gotten more, um, lots more press inquiries. Uh, and I think part of it is that if, if you're a, a young producer, uh, that this can be a, a kind of hot story and, and people suddenly discover it. Uh, it's not clear to me that, uh, that this is, is, is that, um, is that new, uh, but uh, I think it's it's something that for um, for, for mainstream journalists uh, to to pick up, it's it's becoming more of a uh, of a legitimate concern, the or a legitimate story. The other thing that I see is is that um, with social media, um, there is a greater opportunity for um, marginalized groups, organizations to get their story out. So there's there's a new a uh, couple of new groups, but but one significant, the National African American Gun Association, um, and over the last probably three, four, five years, their membership has has really grown in uh, dramatic ways, um, and that has generated some additional coverage. And I think that fits into a kind of narrative that um, that people can understand. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm rambling about it because I think there are a bunch of there are a variety of inputs that are affecting um, the answer to your question, and we're we're sort of in the middle of it. And um, I'm, I'm right now sort of up in the air about whether something really new is happening or whether we're just better at communicating. It's easier for 
black gun owners to get together and 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 say so, so years ago i was talking with roy roy ennis um uh who was you know who was famously uh, pro-gun and we were on uh some dais basically talking about the same thing and and he started he looked over at me at the beginning of his speech and said well this is great i was feeling like the lone ranger for a while and what he was talking about was how uh for a fairly long period, it was difficult to find um, black leaders or, or scholars or anyone who would would say sort of pro gun things in in public in a public way. And you know, I've been doing this this work for you know twenty five years, and um, certainly in the early stages of it, uh, people would would colleagues and and other scholars would look at me with with curiosity wondering you know what's going on here and it really wasn't until i i did the the precursor uh the scholarly precursor to negroes in the gun that i laid it out fully i mean i talked about the worry about the worry of, of trusting the state in in vague terms and um in my early scholarship did not want, really want to make this uh, sort of entirely race driven kind of commentary the race commentary has been very powerful though and i think uh, to circle back to your, your actual question um, i think we're in a, a place where people are thinking harder and more empathetically about the set of concerns that their fellow citizens have and um, how that translates into uh, policy positions, including policy positions on the question of, of, of gun control. So I think we're at a spot where the receptivity to the kind of story that appears in, in Negroes and the Gun and, and uh, the kind of story that fuels the development of the, the National African American Gun Association and a, and a whole host of other online groups uh, whose, whose uh, numbers I can't really take. Um, I think people appreciate that more so now because the examples of the different threat scenarios that might fuel different kinds of positions on firearms policies, um, those examples are appearing on their news feed, uh, appearing on their Facebook page. So uh, I, I, I think there's something about where we are now that makes uh, that makes this a big a very keen moment for the um, the development of this this conversation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.